Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will explore the application of remote viewing to solve scientific anomalies and mysteries and uh, even conspiracies. With me is Dr. Paul Smith, a philosopher. He is the founder and president of Remote Viewing Instructional Services. He has been president twice now of the International Remote Viewing Association, and he is the author of Reading the Enemy's Mind and also The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's always fun to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, too. And when it comes to using remote viewing to explore what we can call scientific anomalies, my sense is that uh, the interest of many remote viewers, particularly in UFOs, which is a scientific mm-hmm. anomaly, has given the field of remote viewing kind of a, a bad reputation because it's like using one unknown uh, to try and resolve another unknown. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that just seems to create so many problems. Things like uh, UFOs, or as they call them now, UAPs, uh, un- unexplained aerial phenomena, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> things like that, and other things like some cryptozoology stuff like Bigfoot and all that, Mm -hmm. uh, they've been very resistant to being uh, researched and explained by our standard scientific uh, tools. Right. So remote viewing presumably can can capture information about anything, anywhere, anytime. Uh, In principle, that may be true. In practice, not so true, but we'll get to that too. Um, So... With that thought, people have said, well, you know, we have this tool. Why don't we try it see if we can unfold or uncover some of these mysteries that are, you know, confronting us? I I can understand the motivation for doing mm-hmm. that, especially when, for example, in the Fort Meade program where mm-hmm. you, you worked, you've got a lot of uh, – People who are now adept at remote viewing and have had some success using it mm-hmm. in military intelligence. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, the UFO problem is kind of similar to a military intelligence matter. Yeah, <clears throat> in a way it is. Um, and it has some, brings some pluses to the table, but it brings some minuses as well. And uh, we can cover those. So, um, let me start. The probably the first really uh, acknowledged encounter between remote viewing and UFOs comes from Pat Price. Pat Price was an early uh, participant in the SRI program. I think he came on board around 1974, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually just sort of volunteered for it. He heard that they were doing some psychical research, and he had done some of this stuff. He'd been a police commissioner for Burbank. Uh, done some police work. He had a wide variety of fields he yeah. was involved in. And, um, he, and he became an outstanding remote viewer. Yes, he, he's the, one of the legends in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, they really found him a valuable research subject uh, 
at SRI and founded many of their discoveries based on some of the what he produced, some of his results. And, um, in fact, I understand he was so successful that the CIA decided to take him away from SRI and have him work directly under their control. Indeed, that's true. And, of course, there's a mystery about all of this because uh, the CIA hired him. And then not long after that, he died under... He, he didn't die under mysterious circumstances, but there was a mystery surrounding his death. So he died of an apparent heart attack, and he really did have a bad heart condition. Mm -hmm. So that didn't surprise anybody. He was in a hotel room in Vegas at the time. Um, but what was weird was that somebody came, uh, an ambulance came up, took his body, and took it off ostensibly to the morgue, but it never got there. For about 24 hours, Pat Price's body was missing. Nobody knew where it was. And then all of a sudden, there it was in the morgue, and nobody knew, nobody knew how it got there. Ooh. So there, there are all kinds of speculation. <laughs> Obviously, you know, any, anytime there's something like that, it's going to generate conspiracies and stuff. And, and uh, obviously, uh, fellow remote viewers might say, can we use remote viewing to figure out what happened during that 24-hour period? I suppose, yeah. I don't know if anybody actually tried that, but uh -huh. I, yeah. I, I mean, that would be the, the, an example of uh, potentially using remote yeah. viewing to look into a conspiracy. That would, yes. And, and of course, that does have, in principle, uh, you can get feedback yeah. and verify what you got in principle, although in practice it might be hard. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but before any of that happened, Pat was an interesting guy. He liked to explore things and all that. And so one day he came in to, uh, Hal Putoff. Hal Putoff was the physicist that directed the program at the time. Comes into Hal Putoff's office and drops a stack of papers on his, on his, uh, desk and says, you know, um, I didn't have much to do last night, so I thought I'd explore the world for, uh, see if there are any UFO bases around. And I found four of them. I can tell you where they were. One all in right. the Pyrenees, one in South America, one in Alaska, Mount Hayes, and one in Australia. Okay. And he detailed which either one of them was like a maintenance base, another <laughs> one was for reconnaissance yeah. research or something, and so on like yeah. that. And uh, drew some sketches of the vehicles that were associated with it, these oh. UFOs and such things like that. And uh, left it with Hal, and of course Hal doesn't know what to make of this, but he, the obligation was that anything that the viewers did had to get reported to the CIA because they were funding mm -hmm. the program at the time and they were the contract. So all of this must now be in the archives that are declassified and available. Well, I don't know. Um, they're not in the archives, this oh. stuff. I do have copies of them. Hal gave me copies, okay. but, uh, but, uh, maybe but this never got them. declassified. Well, they're in public. I mean, they're available, but, okay. uh, yeah, but, uh, not widely available because Hal is kind of jealous about his copies and I'm kind of jealous about mine. I, I <laughs> but see. I've used them in articles mm -hmm. I've written. Uh, All right. Yeah. But, uh, but that served as a, as a seed kernel for some yeah. later remote now, viewing. I, I should just backtrack a, a second because I mentioned the archives and yeah. I think it's important to just say for our viewers that about a million pages of documents relating to the 20-year uh, government funding of remote viewing have now been declassified and are publicly available. Yeah, I, I hate to correct you, but actually it's closer to about 100,000 pages. Pages. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that million figure. I have no idea where it came from. It's well, then I was repeating false information, so I stand I you, corrected you, happily. I know. You're you're a, a, a stand-up guy. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, But yeah, I've heard that. I don't know where it came from. Mm. But still, 100,000 pages is a lot of paper. Yeah. It's a lot of paper. And I know you've gone through it all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yes. So you, when you say that the Pat Price drawings of UFO bases are not in there, you know. Yeah. Well, let's say within 99% certainty. I mean, there's always, maybe I missed it accidentally, yeah. you know, as mm-hmm. possible, but, but no one else has reported finding them in there either. Okay. So I don't think, I suspect Hal didn't pass on copies, just called them up and told them, yeah. told, told the CIA about it. Um, there is some verification about it. Hal tells the story that, uh, when they got the, they looked at the information on the Australian target, um, it happened that, and I'm trying to remember who it was that knew the, the CIA chief of station out there. Um, and so the guy called up the CIA chief of station and said, Hey, um, what can you tell me about, uh, the so-and-so area, whatever that mountain was called? I should have looked this up, then I would remember it, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the so-and-so area. Didn't mention UFOs, didn't mention anything like that. And the CIA station chief said, Oh, you mean that place where all the UFOs are reported from? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's interesting as yeah. confirmation, you know, wouldn't stand up in, you know, scientific confirmation, but still some evidence that maybe Pat was onto something, you yeah. know. But, uh, the interesting thing about it is that, uh, well, there's so many interesting things about it. Uh, that, if that material actually got passed on also to Skip Atwater at mm. Fort Meade and Skip is, he was very cautious about what he worked the viewers on. He wanted to make sure it was, worthy of the time and energy. And he he also had a curiosity about UFOs, but he wanted to do it in a in a responsible way. So first of all, he, he did what he could to to uh narrow down what it exactly was that the claim was and try and sort it out. But then he also had this uh policy of doing some training sessions with viewers just to test their limits, to to push their limits, which is a good approach. You know, mm-hmm. find out what the actual ultimate parameters are of this sure. ability. So he came up with some fairly well-constructed uh, projects researching Pat Price's data. And he would, uh, fully blind, uh, run the viewers on these. Uh, he'd work them in with other targets that they did that were more conventional so they wouldn't, you know, suspect something, right? And so they, um, he systematically went through all of these, these uh, UFO bases that Pat Price identified. And then he compiled the data, and a lot of these sessions are in the archives. Mm. He has them all, but many of them are in the archives. In, in other words, at Fort Meade, on informal training sessions, mm-hmm. Skip Atwater began developing uh, targets relating to UFO, ostensible UFO bases. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And some UFO events as well. Um one of interest was a, I, I want to say Argentinian minesweeper. Um, it was off the coast of Argentina and it was found abandoned, drifting with nobody on board. Oh. Yeah. Totally no explanation. And it was like, it's kind of like the Mary Celeste, you know, food on, food on the, ga- on the table, still warm. You know, the lifeboats are still on the ship. Uh, none of the life preserver stuff was gone, but everybody else, all the, the entire complement was missing. Uh-huh. And um, there had been reports of UFOs. So these are actually USOs, undersea objects, right? Unidentified su- submerged submerged objects, I think is what that stands for. And so there's this, this uh, whole branch of ufology where UFOs, they dive into the ocean or in, into bodies of water mm-hmm. and submerge or they emerge out of the water and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's some, a bunch of reports from this area about that. So Skip, again, ran fully blind, blind viewers on this and they reported really kind of bizarre things. 
uh, I, you know, I worked on several of these, right? And after the fact, we find out about it. And, and, uh, <laughs> I get into the session and I get this image of a UFO and a ship, this impression of a UFO and a ship, you know, like a flying saucer or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, Oh, this can't be right. This can't be, I mean, this, this can't be the kind of session I'd be doing. And, and it was so strong that I wrote down, uh, you know, AOL break, UFO and a ship. I just can't work any further and I quit. Uh-huh. I just, I just couldn't get that out of my head. And, and of I course you were blind. Wrong. Yes. I didn't know that's what the target mm-hmm. was. It could have been anything. It could have been. Yeah. Uh, but other of the viewers reported some very interesting things about this. One of them, uh, let me think. I want to say it's Bill Ray, who's one of my colleagues. Uh, talked you know, talked about how he perceived a, a vessel and a UFO and the crew just like going crazy and all jumping off the back of the ship. So I, I don't know, and yeah. none of us really know what the bottom line and, is. On and those, I presume though the crew members were never located. They're ne- no, never found. Not no remains. Anything. Okay. And let yeah. me ask one other question: How many members were there at this time in mid eighties in the Fort Meade unit? Viewers were about, I'd say about six. About maybe, six. Maybe, yeah. Okay. And then staff, about another four, I think, mm-hmm. four or five. This is a very small yeah. unit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we worked on other projects that I can't give you real specifics on without actually looking them up and, yeah. and, and reminding myself of the details. Um, so those were, I, I think, kind of thought-provoking. Yes. You know? um, I, I wouldn't stake my life on any of it, but... Uh, but I won't reject it out of, outright either because I knew the circumstances in which it was done. It was fairly responsibly done and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and cleanly done. So it, it gave me a lot of room to think because a lot of the viewer information really seriously overlapped. So you, you had know? access to the transcripts from the other viewers at uh, some point. Yeah, at some point in about 2004 mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's when the archives became 20 available. years later. Yes, okay. that's right. So, yeah, at the time, we didn't see any of, at least I never saw anybody else's work. I mean, mean, that's an issue because if if you're aware of what other viewers have Mm -hmm. come up with, that could could influence influence you. you. Mm -hmm. And also, I suppose it's fair to say that for most of the intelligence projects that you were tasked on as a viewer, you never got any feedback in any case. That's true. Operationally, that's why they worked us on things, other things that there was feedback on, just so we could maintain our edge. Yeah. As you're working operationally, sometimes you won't know the answer for months or years or ever. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, if that's all you did, you would sl- slight, very likely start to uh, lose your edge and, and sure. your and your feedback is, is very important. Absolutely, it's essential in, in human learning psychology. Right. Yeah. So. Um, so that was kind of the outcome of that. Now, there's one other interesting thing about us trying to replicate what Pat Price had discovered. That was, uh, I did a session on his Mount Hayes target, uh, as did Mel Riley. This I remember fairly well because I wrote it up in an article for UFO magazine one time. Uh, Pat had sketched a UFO that was oblong and had a center midline through it and was kind of a in shape. Uh, and in my session, of course, fully blind, not knowing I'm replicating anything Pat Price ever did, and not ever having seen his work. In fact, I didn't even see his work until probably about 2010 or 2012, somewhere in that period, when Al gave me that information. Um, when I was able to see Pat Price's stuff, my sketch is strikingly similar to his sketch. 
without any cross-pollination possible, mm. at least any normal kind of problem. I mean, mm-hmm. And he's dead, so it couldn't be telepathy. No. Well, <laughs> so, maybe it was telepathy I, but, uh, uh, with a deceased uh, person. Yeah. But, uh, I think the uh, interesting point here is that uh, we're talking about a consensus amongst viewers, mm-hmm. which uh, is, is, I would say, important uh, Factor in the scientific evaluation. Yes. If you get multiple viewers who are providing similar descriptions, just as if you had multiple conventional intelligence yeah. sources providing similar descriptions, yeah. you would take it more seriously. Yeah. In the intelligence world, uh, you do want multiple sources. In fact, they call it uh, uh, all source intelligence, right? At least they did when I was there, where any source from uh, signals intelligence to uh, aerial imagery to human intelligence, the more of those things corroborating a certain fact mm-hmm. about the enemy or whatever. And, and for some intelligence analysts, uh, better or worse, this is a form of human intelligence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The one downside to this, and this is this is one of the problems with it, and I'll get into that right now because this is a good opportunity. Uh, the source, the independence of those uh, various sources is very important. Yeah. So intelligence, human intelligence is usually significantly a different kind of source than signals intelligence is. So they corroborate each other really well if they correspond. Yeah. In remote viewing, you have this odd thing that's been named telepathic overlay. So telepathic overlay, the I, what what sometimes occurs is that all of the viewers come to a consensus based on a false story that yeah. is perhaps more strongly held by one of the viewers or by the tasker who, who may believe something about it. And so you end up with them confirming a false story rather than the real one. Now, I recall an ESP experiment done many years ago, I think by Gertrude Schmeidler at the City mm-hmm. College of New York, working with Alan Vaughn, who was mm-hmm. also a remote viewer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and at the time was more well known as a psychic, not a remote viewer. Yes. And he had psychic training classes. I took one once. Mm-hmm. And uh, his students. And what Gertrude Schmeidler found is that the students seemed to telepathically tune into Alan. And uh, whether his description was correct or incorrect, the mm-hmm. students seemed to match his. Yeah. I have heard that happens with Joe McMonigle when he's when he's working with a bunch of people who are and they're all remote viewing a target that some of them yeah. tend to tend to link into Joe yeah. because of course he's an authority figure right mm-hmm. and so they think that he must be right well Joe isn't right all the time either and he admits that but this know. would be subconscious I mean I don't think the students no this is not are, intentional right it's not intentional so in an anomaly kind of a target such as a UFO event here's where. Uh, a kind of a scenario that shows you how this could be a problem. Okay, so um, let's say there's a UFO event that the person who wants to know about it absolutely believes happened and has a certain model in his head about how it happened, uh, but actually never existed. Mm-hmm. It's something somebody falsely reported or, or hallucinated or whatever. Yeah. So they, so he's, we'll say he in this case, uh, has this idea and he tasks remote viewers and let's say it's even done responsibly through, you know, double blind and all that. So the viewer gets the tasking to go out to to uh, perceive and describe this event. Well, there was is no event. Mm-hmm. So they look around for the next most powerful psychic signal. What is it? It's the confabulation about this event that's in the tasker's mind. And so they pick up on that and they report that as if that's the real event because it's, they can't tell the difference. And so what they end up doing is confirming 
the false beliefs of the person that tasked them on it. Now, this is probably what occurred in, uh, that we described in a previous interview concerning uh, reports by remote viewers of a, an unidentified object tagging along with the Halebop comet. Um, could well be, yes, yeah. could well be. Um, now, I, I'll be the first to say that we don't have much empirical evidence to prove this happens. But I've observed it happening enough in remote viewing projects I've worked that, at least from a prima facie perspective, this is something like this is happening, yeah. right? Um, there have been a, a few little experiments. There's a, a, a guy out there in the remote viewing community named Daz Smith mm. who came up with a fictional target but didn't tell anybody it was fictional and had a bunch of remote viewers remote view it. And sure enough, they reported the target as he had conceived it. So that's evidence that there is this possibility. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that in uh, where there's a concrete target and the tasking, the protocols follow properly, uh, generally speaking, it's a very, very unlikely kind of a thing that mm-hmm. develops. I mean, rarely, particularly if the viewers are well-experienced, well-disciplined, they're less likely to fall prey to telepathic order. They, they tend to go and do what they're supposed yeah. to go and do. Well, I have heard rumors, and maybe you know better than I, I don't know, that one of the reasons that the program uh, was closed uh, in 1995 uh, was that... Uh, there was too much attention being paid to UFOs mm-hmm. and things like this on the fringes. Well, um, <clears throat> that that didn't factor in, not inside the program. That mm-hmm. wasn't a problem inside the program. Um, and, you know, to go back to more of the history, uh, Ed Dames, uh, who we've talked about before, did have a real interest in UFOs and mm-hmm. stuff, and he would often run viewers on these targets, Um and we didn't really want to do them mm-hmm. because you didn't get feedback for them. And Ed was was much sloppier than Skip Outwater was in doing it. And he was at that point part of the uh, Fort Meade program. Yes. He, this was after he came on board. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, he had a massive curiosity about these mm-hmm. things. And I understand that. Yeah. You know, I'm most somewhat, people are curious. Of course, you yeah. know. Um, but he wasn't really very rigorous about how he approached it. And so mm-hmm. I don't trust most of the data that was developed yeah. by him. Occasionally, you know, something looks intriguing enough to maybe be, mm-hmm. uh, have something to it. But, uh, but that did get a bit known. Um, and Dames was frequently told, I don't know what frequently means, two or three times anyway, told by the people in charge to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But he, because, so first of all, remote viewers can't get him to stop doing it because we have to be blind. We have no idea what the target is. So yeah. we're at the mercy of the tasker, right? Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and the, the people in charge don't necessarily know what he's doing if he, if they never see the results of these things. They mm-hmm. don't know what's ever been done. Mm-hmm. So he continued to persist in that. But the thing was with Ed was that he left the program, the, as, as I'm recalling, around the end of 88, mm-hmm. re- end of 19, 1988. And the program kept going to 1995. And from Ed Dames on, as far as I can tell, nobody did any UFO, ET, okay. anomaly sessions in within the unit. It makes sense if you look at it in the context of some of the famous early remote viewings by Ingo Swan and others looking at the planet, uh, planet Jupiter, mm-hmm. the planet Saturn, I think the planet Mars in advance of space probes. So uh-huh. providing descriptions that could then be uh, compared with the results coming back from satellite imagery. Yes. Um, 
And uh, that leads to, uh, of course, another uh, person of, that who is seriously interested in UFOs and remote viewed them and talked about them. And that was Ingo Swan himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was very interested. He wrote in a it. book uh, called Penetration. Yes, after, it's one of the most uh, astounding books that I have ever read. It rings like a true story, and yet it's so unbelievable yeah. that that it's hard for me to accept it. And yeah. having to do with a mysterious group of apparent intelligence agents of some sort who flew him to some remote location in, I think, Alaska, in the far north, where he mm-hmm. witnessed UFOs and, yeah. in fact, was even injured by one. Well, at least, uh, I don't know, injured, but certainly endangered by one, because it seemed to be blasting the terrain with energy weapons of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing about that, of course, is that I, and I don't have firsthand knowledge about whether that's true or any of those stories are true or not, he was obviously not able to document them in any uh, way to, you know, to prove evidence other than his own hearsay. Uh, I and Hal Putoff have talked about that off and on. Um, and Hal's position is, yeah, I don't know if this happened or not. He didn't tell me about it at the time. Of course, in the book, he says he was forbidden to do that. Uh, he didn't uh, tell me about that at the time, but... Uh, this would have been happening while Ingo was working yeah, at SRI. In, I think mostly in the 70s, maybe into the 80s yeah. a little bit. Um, but Hal said, and I endorse this, he said, Ingo never told me anything that wasn't true. Yeah. And Ingo was very honest about things. Mm-hmm. Now, he might tell you things that he believed to be true that may or may not have been true. But if he was telling you about an experience or whatever, it was an experience he really had. Yeah. Um, and so, so both Hal and I would say, well, why would he start now telling us things that aren't true? You know, he has, he has a good track record of, of integrity and, and this, it would have been very out of character for him to have made something like this up. And, and not only out of character, it would have damaged all of the other work he had been yes. doing for, uh, at that point, many years. Yes. Now, the second half of the book is a little, is, is not first person. And in fact, a lot of the, a lot of the material he has in there seems to come from places like the National Enquirer or the Star or whatever, you know, so mm-hmm. questionable, uh, literary sources in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that half of the book, he's talking about the moon and the odd kind of anomalies that have been, dis- that are seen and observed on the moon. Yes. And when I first read it, I thought, oh, crud, this is National Enquirer stuff, you know, Ingo, you're embarrassing yourself, right? It turns out there are anomalies on the moon that NASA in itself has documented, mm-hmm. like transient lights and mm-hmm. stuff. And they try and come up with a natural expla- explanation for it. But there are things that have happened there they don't have a natural explanation for. It. They just assume they're ultimately going to find out what caused it. You know, And maybe that's true. I don't know. But that gave uh, Genesis to a... Uh, to a couple of projects that Ingo actually dragged me in on after... Uh, after the program was shut down, I was, uh, and I had retired from the military, he asked me to remote view some sites for him. And it turned out they were lunar targets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I didn't know what they were. Again, I'm blind, right? Yeah. You know, so if I get these coordinates and okay, and I work them and I come up with things that are really definitely consistent with the moon and further consistent with bizarre things going on on the moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking, okay, what is Ingo trying to do here? And I, I sent him the stuff off, and ultimately he sent me a big piece of his final report. He was apparently doing it for someone else. And uh, what struck me is that a number of the things that 
that I reported were very similar to things Ingo had reported because he'd worked it as well. Now, I have to say, I think he was front-loaded, which I'm a little uncomfortable with. No, all right, let's define yeah, that. Front-loaded means you know what your target is to begin with. Mm -hmm. and, and that's generally a no-no in remote viewing. Um, and the reason for that is partly because then, then whatever you believe about it yeah. ends up in your session, even sure. if what you believe is wrong. But it also makes it hard, harder to pick up on the session, on the, on this subtle signal coming in because it gets blanketed by your preconceived notions about what you know about the target. Yeah. So, um, but I was not, right? I was not front loaded. I was blind to this target. Yeah. And since he was handling this through the mail, I mean, I'd got no, there was no subtle cueing. There was no accidental drops of phrase or anything. All I got was a coordinate. And I worked the session, right? Yeah. And so an overlap between that and Ingo's was more compelling to me. Now, there was a so you got guy. some feedback at some yes. point. Yes. Well, most of my feedback had to do with seeing what the other viewers had done. There was one other guy, and our overlapped with his stuff, too. Now, there could have been telepathic overlay, yeah. but by then I was pretty experienced. I mean, I've been remote viewing for closing in on 20 years at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I can't discount the possibility of telepathic overlay, but I can at least have some confidence that it may not have been an explanation. So. Now, I happen to know uh, that uh, Lynn Buchanan is mm -hmm. an artist and mm -hmm. he has a website of his artwork and on uh, one of the uh, I think they're digital uh, they're, yeah, they're computer-generated. Computer-generated, yeah. but one is a picture of the surface of the moon with mm -hmm. a dome over one of the craters, mm -hmm. like a glass dome over a crater. And um, I seem to recall that Lynn Buchanan believes there is some kind of a base on the moon that he was picking up on. Um, hmm, I don't know. I yeah. don't recall him talking about it, but it's possible. He believes lots of things about UFOs and ET, so that's certainly yeah. possibly one. Um and my memory is getting shorter the older I get. So yeah. it's possible he's talked about it. Um, I, I'm actually, before, if you'd asked me before, I would have ruled out the possibility. I would say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's yeah. something somebody from 2001, the Space Odyssey, got, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, not just based on Ingo's sessions, but some of the actual empirical data about these anomalies on the moon lead me to at least be willing to entertain the possibility there might be mm -hmm. a base there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to go swear on a stack of Bibles. Yeah, absolutely, there's a base there. I can't say that. No. But I can say that uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. In so, other words, as an intelligence officer, mm -hmm. you regard this not as confirmation, but as piece a piece of data that might help you form a hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. And then we got to find the data that confirms or, or rejects the hypothesis, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the main step, right? Uh -huh. but we haven't got there yet. So what so. you have is an unconfirmed hypothesis. Yes. And, and With some data that seems to support it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, what you seem to be saying is thus far, that would be a legitimate application of remote viewing. I'd say so. Now, so here's, let me talk about the bad before we get into the good. Okay, so one of the problems with remote viewing coming to the public is that everybody felt the pull of these ways to use remote viewing. And so we have all kinds of people remote viewing aliens and conspiracy theories and all of these kind of anomalies and things mm -hmm. and uh, and then declaring they found the truth about them. Yeah. But you can't do that with remote viewing if you don't have some kind of confirmation because – Fantasy is a significant element in remote viewing, particularly when you're doing fantastical things. And so, the most you can say if you remote view, um, uh, and, you know, an extraterrestrial base is that this is what you perceived. And 
this much of it may correspond with something somebody else has said or done. But this stuff over here, you have no confirmation for, so it's just the jury's out. It may or may not be true. That's the most you can say. Mm-hmm. But you get people who are absolutely convinced that they are, that's exactly right. And so they build these whole houses of cards, imaginary houses of cards, about what's going on in outer space with aliens mm-hmm. and galactic civilizations, all that stuff, based on really nothing that's concrete. Yeah. Well, there you have one of the real uh, hazards, not just of remote viewing, but I suppose of popular interest in mm-hmm. psychic phenomena and parapsychology mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. There's this kind of will to believe. Yeah. And the more sensational and exciting it is, the more inclined you are to believe it. And this is not new in human psychology. I mean, we see this in the Salem Witch Trials. You know, we see this in, in all the superstitions throughout the ages. Now, uh, a side note on superstitions, uh, probably not all superstitions are totally groundless. There may be 10% legitimate and about 90% cultural baggage that gets attached to it. Mm-hmm. The same thing with a lot of uh, ESP modality things like shamanism. You know, there's a, a real interest in shamanism out there. And... uh and I really am convinced that many shaman are actually tied into this core underlying faculty that we have mm-hmm. that allows us non-local consciousness, Stephen Schwartz or, or Russell might call it, right? Non-local consciousness, they're tied into that. But then all of this other stuff that gets put around it mm-hmm. that from their culture tends to obscure and, and hide the actual core elements. And you know, I suppose the real shame is I hear from viewers occasionally mm-hmm. of this very program who are skeptically inclined and tend to mm-hmm. think that this is what parapsychology is all about, is this kind of delusional thinking. Yeah. And it's sad because it's it's like the baby in the bathwater thing, right? Mm-hmm. There is a small baby in this bathtub <laughs> that's real. And there's all this dirty bathwater. And, and so many scientists and others just want to get rid of the bathwater and the baby happens to go out with it. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, and that's unfortunate. I mean, that's the disservice I see some of these sensationalizers. And I'll, I'll name Ed Dames and, and Courtney Brown as one who I think uh, mm-hmm. over-sensationalized the field. Mm-hmm. They write a much bigger check than they have funds in their account for, right, when they're talking about this. And, uh, and, and they get a lot of people excited, enthusiastic about it. Yeah. But if you really start to boil it down to what's really true, you find that there's not a lot – there mm-hmm. and uh, and the problem with that is it gives an image of remote viewing as being this kind of circus, right? And uh, the remote viewing as being kind of a circus, and where there may be a legitimate interest in exploring this phenomena, these phenomena, uh, in a responsible way, that just gets totally submerged by everybody out there. It's kind of like the Wild West, you know, everybody shooting at everybody else, essentially, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, just remote viewing any anomaly that comes along in any haphazard way, front-loaded or whatever, and, and thinking they found truth. Yeah. It's it unfortunate. Does, it does strike me that remote viewing could be used as a tool for solving mm-hmm. unsolved scientific sure. mysteries. For e- example, at one time, it never got funded, but we thought it might. We had a proposal out to use remote viewing to try to understand the cause and the cure of um, MS, mm-hmm. which is still a, a, a serious Absolutely. Uh, medical problem mm-hmm. that has yet to be solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, in fact, there was a, uh, the International Remote Viewing Association has this uh, 
this competition called the Warcolier Prize, right? Yes. Where you get a small fund if you win it for doing a particular science project that you come up I've with involving worked as a judge on several. Yes, you have. Uh, Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's a small uh, service, but it, yeah, but, but it's, it's very, very interesting yes. to evaluate the proposals, and and some of them are very high quality, yeah. and some of them are very low quality. Yeah, uh, but 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 the part of the reason for that that initiative mm -hmm. is actually to help people learn how to do remote viewing experiments yeah. and, and other ESP-related experiments in a disciplined way. Mm -hmm. And even if a low-quality one comes in, they've learned something from that process, and maybe the next time there it will be a better one that they propose. Because right? I think it's fair to say this about the International Remote Viewing Association, is that most everybody in there is interested in cultivating their own personal mm -hmm. remote viewing abilities and applying them. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, actual researchers are just a handful. Yes, yeah. And that's true in the entire ESP world, you know. Mm -hmm. so. But uh, there was one project that was done, uh, seeing how well remote viewers could identify and describe bacteriophages. Mm -hmm. Now, a bacteriophage is a small virus-like entity that preys on bacteria. Uh -oh. There's obvious value in this, right? If you can get some bacteriophages that'll eat the bacteria you don't want, you know, the, the dangerous bacteria, mm -hmm. um, then you want to cultivate those and learn how to manage them, right? Yep. Um, and, in fact, they had uh, microbiologists, without any connection to remote viewing, judge the results. And it turned out very impressive. Mm. Very impressive. It was a nice pilot study. It would be interesting to see that pursued in order to develop maybe some solutions like you were talking about. Yeah. But but so that in a way is a mystery, although there is impl there is in, uh, in principle feedback available for that. But um, I mean that's the key is whether or not there will even in theory yeah. be feedback. Yeah. So um, but let, let's translate this to we'll use UFOs for example. Okay. Yeah. So in many UFO events, you probably aren't going to get feedback. <clears throat> Reynolds and Forest, for example, a famous UFO flap in England. Uh, there was some ground. You know, some evidence vestiges on the ground and stuff. You remote view that event, you may get information, but that you'll never really be able to verify. Mm -hmm. The only confirmation would be is if the remote viewer reports some of this evidence on the ground that they can certify is there. Uh, but if you pursue it in a responsible way, the way you might pursue an operational remote viewing project against a foreign threat that you don't have ground truth on, may eventually, um, you could still uncover some useful information about the phenomenon. Uh, but it has to be very carefully done. Yeah. It's not something you can do as just sort of a one-off kind of a thing and be able to trust it. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me we're at a point in history right now where the application of remote viewing for practical problem solving is really in its infancy. Yes. We, we have the 20-year program funded by the military, and we have a number of uh, private organizations doing work subsequently. But I can well imagine that a 100 years from now, many of the issues that are slowing us down today, people will have found good workable protocols and, and solutions. And uh, I'd like to think that uh, people looking back at this conversation uh, 100 years in the future uh, will be able to say we've made enormous progress. Yes. yes. Um, and it would be nice to have that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was learning to play guitar, I, you get very frustrated after a few weeks. You don't feel like you're making any progress at all. Yeah. 
And I had one guy tell me, okay, well, all you do is turn the guitar over and try to do it with your left hand or your right hand instead of your left hand, and you'll see how much progress you made. Uh-huh. And it's really, that is really true. You get a contrast between what you can't do and what you can do, and you'll realize, okay, this is not bad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I really like to see, uh, I, I don't, I don't do anomaly stuff except occasionally, like when Ingo asked me, and I didn't know I was doing it right. Yeah. I don't like to do that stuff, partly because you don't get feedback, partly because Mark Twain once said uh, he didn't believe in reading health books because he was afraid he'd die of a misprint. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, who knows what you might end up getting in these, like, dividing by zero kind of mm-hmm. kind of approaches. So, and I like to use that dividing by zero in terms of, of uh, anomaly remote viewing because – if you're going against an anomaly that you have no feedback, you don't know anything about it, it's like dividing by zero. You can get anything. Yeah. You, get, you know, that's the whole problem with trying to divide a number by zero. Any number can come out of that. And so, um, it, it's a, it's a danger of, of starting to believe way too much and leading you astray from, you know, rational thinking about how to apply remote viewing in a, in a responsible, reasonable way. Well, you seem to be arguing for a balanced approach. I think so, yeah. Uh-huh. Paul, this has been a delightful conversation once again. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, you are hugely welcome. And I look forward to more. That'd be, I'm, I'm happy to do that, yes. Okay. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.